Praise the Lord. There we go. There are some handouts up here. Thank you, Noah. Um, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the day. Just thank you for your grace poured out on us every day, mostly in ways we don't even realize and or pay attention to. But we are truly grateful. We are very thankful. Bless our time here tonight, God. Be honored in it as we look into history, your story. Teach us, Lord. Teach us from the stories of the past and how you deal with humanity, not just in the things that are recorded for us in the Bible, but, Lord, all of history, all of your story. Father, we ask that you would do this to help us be a people who can be as gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents as we live in this world and give witness to you. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me... I think we left off maybe in 39, I don't know. Let me open my computer here and see where we left off. Yeah, 39 AD. And um, with the death of Pontius Pilate in 39 AD, with the assumption of the empire, rule of the empire, by Caligula. Um, 41 AD, two years later, Gaius Caligula was murdered. Um, so he took the throne of the empire in 37 AD, and he was murdered four years later in 41 AD. He was not a well-liked person, unlike his father, Augustus. Um, or Tiberius. And then after Gaius Caligula was murdered, Claudius Caesar becomes the emperor of Rome. Remember King Agrippa, I gave you a handout, and we'll look at that in a moment. I gave you a handout because all of the Herods get very confusing. King Agrippa is Herod Agrippa, so he's, he's a Herod. Um, we see him in the Bible as King Agrippa, um, but with the death of Caligula, he gained even more land and more power in Palestine, Palestine or Palestine. I misspelled that in your... Um, hand out there. Sorry about that. It was this year, 41 AD, that Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, who was a devout Roman 
and had come to love the Jewish people and love the law of God. And how did he come to have that love? Not a, it's not a trick question. Question. How? Huh? God loved him. That's right. God, God chose him before the foundations of the world. And this Roman centurion becomes the first Gentile, not just proselyte, but the first Gentile in the record of Scripture that the gospel was face-to-face delivered to by the Apostle Peter. In 43 AD, Barnabas goes to Tarsus to find Saul, who is called Paul. And it is Barnabas who brings Saul to Antioch. So Barnabas was already a part of the Antioch church. Saul, remember, had his miraculous conversion. And um, he disappears, but they knew where he was, and Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch. And it is in Antioch that the disciples are first called Christians. It it's, comes from a Latin, it comes from Latin, not Greek. And it's what they were called, Christians, little Christs. These were followers of this Jesus, the Christ. It was in that year that Agabus, also a prophet in Antioch, prophesies of the coming famine, what, what was termed a worldwide famine. Agabus is also the guy who prophesies to Paul when Paul is making his final trip to Jerusalem. We're not there yet. Um, we haven't even come to Paul's first missionary journey, but we're, we're, we're just about to be there. In 44 AD, the famine increases. Now, um, and as the famine is increasing, the Jews, I mean, the uh, Christians in Antioch collect gifts. They collect money and provision for the Christians in Judea because the famine has hit Judea very very hard. And it wasn't just the Christians. There are historical accounts of, of other rulers even. And Rome itself sending figs and sending um, um, grain because of the famine in Judea. So remember, the world was very different then than it is now. There was no social welfare system. There was no safety net, if you will. If you didn't have food, you didn't have food. And if your family, your friends, or somebody you know didn't have the means to help you, there was no, typically no government. Now, we would see this with Rome. Rome would. They would try to bring relief, and they did that in, in many different ways. But outside of the city of Rome, when these things would happen... Remember, we, we looked a, a couple of weeks ago about the earthquakes that took place in... Um, they sent aid from Rome to try to rebuild cities and things, but it's vastly different than it would, would be today. 
And it's hard for us to imagine the world back then because we live in the world we live in today. You know, then there was no such thing as fiat currency. They didn't just have a printing press where they could print money. I mean, currency was real. It was gold, it was silver, it was something tangible. Here today, we just do everything on credit and we just make money out of air. Um, and so those things were very different back then. So after Paul and Barnabas preach a whole year in Antioch, they're sent to the Christians of Judea bearing this gift that's been collected for famine relief. We see this in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, 29, and 30. Herod Agrippa I. I'm going to distinguish them from first and second tonight. Herod Agrippa I begins to persecute Christians in 44 AD. So remember when we started our journey through the book of James on Sunday morning, we said that the book of James was written somewhere between 44 and 62 uh, because he's writing to the Jews of the diaspora. Well, when did those uh, Christians, James is writing to Christians, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. Well, those Jewish believers were dispersed broadly beginning in 44 AD um, with the persecution that came from Agrippa I. And then James was executed, murdered in 62, so we know that the book of James was written somewhere between there. Agrippa is the same guy who had also James the Apostle beheaded. So Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I, was, um, he was very favorable of the Jewish faith, not saying that he was a righteous guy who kept the law and kept all the righteousness, but he was a huge proponent of Judaism and the law. So Christianity began to creep into that and begin to draw people away. This was the idea of the Jews. They don't recognize Moses. So one of the things that um, it's, it's kind of hard for us to understand, but if you read the Jewish writings um, from the rabbis, so for instance, the rabbis believe the only reason Moses the only reason Moses was able to go to the mountaintop to be in the presence of the Lord was because of Abraham. If it weren't for Abraham, Moses could have never made it to the mountaintop to appear before the Lord. So when you read these writings, you see that it is their, it is their being descendants of Abraham. Now, Jesus deals with this in John chapter 8. Uh, he dealt with it through his whole earthly ministry. This is what Paul is dealing with in most of his letters. Uh, and it's why the Judaizers would come and say, you must keep the law. But even if you did keep the law, even if you were a Gentile who converts to Judaism, you will never hold a place equal to the physical descendants of Abraham. 
And so they traced everything back to Abraham. And, and whatever Jew did any great thing, whatever favor God showed, it was only shown because they were descendants of Abraham. Fast forward to the gospel when you have guys like the Apostle Paul who are saying, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Or we're not justified by works or by the deeds of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul writes in his letters about endless genealogies that mean nothing, a.k.a. your physical descendants from Abraham doesn't get you anything. John the Baptist, when he began his ministry, said to the Pharisees and the scribes that came out questioning, by what authority do you do this? And he calls them broods of vipers. And he says, if God wanted he could raise up descendants of Abraham from these rocks right here. And so the gospel says that our favor with God, God's love for us has nothing to do with our ancestry. It's not our connection or not connection to Abraham. Well, this was extremely offensive to the Jews. And so a ruler like Herod Agrippa I, who embraced Judaism, embraced all of those ideas, saw Christianity as a threat to that, and so he started persecuting Christians. And so James was beheaded, the brother of, of John, the apostle James. Then when he sees that the execution of James made the Jews happy, he has Peter thrown in prison. This was at the Passover in 44 AD. So he doesn't want to do the execution at the Passover, so he's going to wait and bring Peter before the people after the days of unleavened bread. And then his plan is basically to, to have Peter executed because he's sure that the people will say, yes, kill him, just like they were happy that he had killed James. But God... Instead, sent an angel to release Peter from prison. Um, and so it is this Herod Agrippa I. So I put the scripture references there. We're tracking through the book of Acts here on the timeline. It's this Herod Agrippa who addresses the people from his throne, and the people begin shouting, You are, you have the voice of a God, you are a God. Now, uh, what's interesting is Josephus tells us in his history what happened that day was Herod put his royal robes on that were very glorious, if I use that word, and they had woven in them threads of silver. And so when he, he's, he's entire, he's on his throne addressing the people and he's sitting outside and the sunlight on these robes with silver threads all in them caused him to just kind of like look like he was illuminated. And as he came in to the place where he's going to address the people, this illumination from the robes that he has on, the people start crying out, oh, you know, have mercy on us. You're a God. You're a God. 
You have the voice of a God. He's addressing the people. And Acts tells us because he didn't give glory to God, God sent an angel and, and smote him. And, uh, and he died a gruesome death. Acts tells us he died having been eaten by worms. Um, Josephus presents a much more gruesome picture, and he, he gives, like, details about what happened to Herod, and it's, like, mm, not good. But this is, this is the Herod who is persecuting the church, killing the apostles, um, and now receiving the accolades of, you are a god. That was not uncommon in the, the, the day that we're talking about. Uh, I, I was reading, this is a very interesting little book. Um, it's a big book, but, you know, if you ever want to invest in just, you know, good things that can teach you a lot, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Um, and, and so what, what this book is, it, it deals with the time period of Jesus the Messiah And it tells you basically the world, it describes the world that Jesus lived in. It describes the world that the gospel was preached in. And I'm going to read a little bit from that um, before we end tonight. Because um, I had no way to print it out and I didn't feel like trying to type it all out for you. So I thought I'd just read it to you. So Herod Agrippa dies. In 44 A.D., Barnabas and Saul, remember they were sent to Jerusalem to deliver the gift for the Christians in Judea because of a famine. Well, they return back to Antioch because they fulfilled their mission and they take along with them John Mark. John Mark um, is the guy who wrote, wrote the Gospel of Mark. And John Mark also accompanies Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. So 45 A.D., Paul and Barnabas begin their first missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas are sent out from the church at Antioch. That's where they're based. And after the Lord had commanded, so we, when we read this in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, let's just go there and, and look at this. Acts chapter 13, I'm sorry. Um, it says, now in the, in, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, the Cyrene, Manane, and those who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's Paul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed across to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John, that is John Mark, as their assistants. So I, I mention that because later on, as we go through this chronology, we're going to see that John Mark becomes a point of contention between Paul and Barnabas. 
but we're not there yet. So they, um, they head out on their first missionary journey in 45 A.D. They go to Cyprus first, the island off of the coast of Turkey and, and Greece there in the Aegean and Mediterranean Sea. And uh, Cyprus is where Barnabas is from. And then in 46 A.D., Paul and Barnabas completed. So in a year, they do their missionary journey and they return to Antioch. And it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 28, that Paul and Barnabas stay with the disciples for a long time. So in the biblical record here, Luke is writing Acts, and he just says that Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch there with the disciples for a long time. It's believed that, that they stayed there for about five years. Um, from looking at different things. 49 AD, we fast forward from 46 AD to 49 AD. And King Agrippa I dies. Now he ruled Judea from 37 AD to 44 AD. So this is Herod Agrippa I. He dies in 49 AD. Herod Agrippa was not given. So when he dies, remember uh, Emperor Claudius did not give um, Herod the kingdom that his father had had. So remember, Caligula's murdered, and then Claudius becomes the emperor. So the emperor of Rome right now in 49 AD is Emperor Claudius. Herod uh, Agrippa I and Caligula were very close friends, and Caligula had given Agrippa much greater power and territory. With the death of Caligula and now the death of Agrippa, Claudius didn't take that away from Agrippa, but when Agrippa dies, Claudius doesn't give the same area and the same power to Agrippa the second, the son of Herod Agrippa I. Now this Agrippa, Agrippa II, this is the Agrippa who Paul preaches the gospel to later on in the book of Acts. He's given instead the kingdom of his uncle, Herod of Chalcis, who died in A.D. 48, and so upon his death and upon the death of Agrippa I, Claudius gives Herod Agrippa II the kingdom of his uncle. But he gives to Agrippa II the authority over the temple, the authority over the holy treasury, and the authority to appoint to choose the high priests. One more mention here in 49 AD is Felix. We also see Felix. Felix is mentioned in Acts 23, 24, when Paul is arrested and he's being sent to Rome. Remember, he stays three years in Caesarea, waiting to be sent to Caesar. 
to appeal to Caesar because he's been accused. And so Felix comes, and he also preaches to Felix. Well, who's Felix? Felix was the governor of Samaria. So in that same year, Felix is sent by Claudius to become governor of Samaria. Now, what's interesting, I did not know this about Felix. Felix was a freedman. Do you know what that means? It means he was once a slave. He was a freedman from Claudius. So he was the freedman of Claudius, the emperor. And so Felix and Claudius were very close. And he had now obtained this special class in obvious favor from, from, um, from Claudius. So let's look at this chart that I gave you just real quick. Uh, this was the most helpful chart I could find to kind of help you See who all the Herods were. Herod the Great. Who's Herod the Great? He's the one who was the king of Palestine or Judea, that region, when, when Jesus was born. He's the guy that had all the innocence, all the babies slaughtered. He's the guy that had most of his family murdered because he was so paranoid. Well, now you see the children of Herod the Great. And from Malthace, one of his wives, comes Herod Antipas. We talked about Herod Antipas. He's the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded. And he had him beheaded because John criticized him for marrying the wife of his brother. He married Herodias. She left Philip, the brother of, of um, Herod Antipas, and married, married him. And John the Baptist criticized that incestual marriage, and he was beheaded as a result. Then from that, you go down, you see Herod Agrippa I. How did he get there? Well, you got to go back up to one of the wives of Herod the Great. And from her comes Aristobulus, Bernice. Bernice plays a prominent role in the history of the region. Um, and then from, from Bernice... comes Herod Agrippa the first. He's the guy that died in 44. He's the guy that had the apostle James killed. And his son, Herod Agrippa II, becomes ruler of that region, ruler of the temple of the temple treasury. So he, he appoints the high priest. So he's intimately involved in the politics of Jerusalem. Now, I think it's interesting because remember a, a couple of weeks ago, we looked and we saw that 
in one year, all of these certain people were put in place. Pilots put in place, Agrippa's put in place, uh, and, and all these people are put there, and all of these people are the players that will be involved ultimately with the crucifixion of Jesus. And so when Herod Antipas dies, or Herod Agrippa I dies, and the kingdom is not given to his son, yet control of the temple, control of the temple treasury, and control over who will be high priest was given to him. And so we see that God is putting all of these people in their proper places to bring about his plan and his purpose. All right, any thoughts there? Uh huh. Wait, where where are we at? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because they were. That's a great question. So, uh, that's not Cleopatra of Egypt. That's Cleopatra of Jerusalem, by the way, not the same Cleopatra. So, what's happening here is when Herod the Great dies. Uh, so Augustus is reigning. He's the, the empire. So all of these guys rule under Rome. So Rome is ruling everything. Rome is the iron fist ruling everything. When Herod the Great dies, the kingdom of Herod the Great is divided between his children. So these three sons, Herod Antipas, Archelaus, and Herod Philip, become the the heirs to the kingdom of Herod the Great. And so they just reign in different regions. And so, um, for instance, Archelaus, uh, he's there in Judea, Samaria, and Edomia. Um, and then Herod Philip is in these other areas. And Herod Antipas, um, actually Herod Antipas takes... Archelaus. So Archelaus kind of fades out. And Herod Antipas, this is, um, uh, he, he uh, it obtains um, some of this power. But Herod Agrippa under Caligula is, is kind of re-given kind of what Herod the Great had. So by the time Herod Agrippa comes, Caligula kind of gives to Herod Agrippa I much of what Herod the Great had originally. And, and the difference is Roman emperors just decide who's going to get what, who they want ruling for them in these areas. And when Claudius comes along, Claudius decides that he doesn't want Herod Agrippa II to rule over the same area that Herod Agrippa I did. So they're all ruling, they're all kings, they're just ruling different kingdoms that are determined by the Roman emperor. Is that, yes. what else? Any other questions about that? Okay. 
So I want to I read, and I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it because it was so good. And I really probably should have dug this book out. Thank you, Why? Help me find my book. It's been there, it's just... So, um, in this book, beginning in its chapter 11, it's dealing with the time uh, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. So the time is the, the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so that's where we are uh, at in the timeline here. So we're about 26 AD or so is where we are here. And Mr. Uh, Edersheim gives a lot of background, a lot of important background to what's happening in Rome. Let me see. Hmm? Oh, Herod the Great killed a bunch of his kids, yeah. They survived, yeah. He killed, uh, he killed family from the, his wife's even his wife's families. Um, I wasn't going to read this to you, but then I decided at the last minute I wanted to read it to you, and, and I can't find um, what I'm looking for. Anyways, the, the bottom line is, by this time, Rome is absolutely ruling and in control of the world. We okay out there? All right. So, I'm so sorry. Where is this thing I'm looking for? Can't find it. All right, let me just begin here. Talking about, um, he's talking about a lot of different things. The nature and everyday life. Um just different things, uh, but here, uh, the prevailing ideas, what was, the, what was the condition of the world? Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus begin their ministries, the world that they begin their ministries in, the world that's ruled by Rome. Remember this fourth beast, this horrible beast that Daniel saw in his vision, or that fourth kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. This is Rome. This is who's ruling the world. And in relation to that, what are the prevailing ideas? What was this world like? And as I, as I read this, I, I thought it was very interesting, and I'd like to get your thoughts as when, I, when I go through this. Of the prevailing ideas around with which he was brought, in contact, speaking of Jesus. Some have already been mentioned. Surely the earnestness of his... Uh, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. I am t 
totally and completely in the wrong place. Um, but it, the, what we're talking about here specifically are the ideas or the condition or the environment of the Roman world. Uh, he was talking about Jesus, where he was raised in his family, the prevailing ideas there. I, I want to go here to what was the world like that Jesus was born into and now ministering uh, in. The destinies of Rome were in the hands of one man who was at the same time general-in-chief of a standing army of about 340,000 men, head of a senate, now sunk into a, into a mere court for registering the commands of Caesar. So they just rubber-stamped whatever Caesar wanted. And this is... Um, I'm sorry, I lost my place. <clears throat> and high priest, remember Augustus, Octavian, took this position of high priest of the ancient Roman religion. So now, all of these emperors just assume this position of high priest. So he's high priest of a religion of which the highest expression was the deification of the state in the person of the emperor. Now, as we read this, I want you to think about I want you to think about um, the world we're living in right now. Are you guys, okay, what's, either just come on back or don't worry about him. You know, he just needs to tell him to go on or help him. We should have just told him to wait until after church. It's okay. Yeah, they're really good about that. Um. They haven't been here before, but I'm pretty sure I may have dealt with that person before. But it's okay. <laughs> so the state, the deification of the state, the highest expression of that deification of the state was in... The person of the emperor, he represented the state. Think about, as I read this, the reason I want to read this to you, I'm reading this and I'm like, man, this is the world we're living in right now. Literally, the world we're living in right now. Thus all power within, without, and above lie in his hands. He is the God. The state is God. What the state says goes. The state is God. And the expression, the personification of the state is in the emperor. But he represents not just himself, he represents the state who is God. So within the city, the city of Rome, which in one short reign was transformed from brick into marble. So this is what, this is what uh, when, when Octavian, when Augustus died, on his deathbed, Augustus said, I took, I, I came into this city made of brick, and I have left the city, uh, and it is now a city of marble. So when you go to Rome and you see all the marble and all the glory and all the splendor, 
That's not what Rome looked like before. It literally was a city of brick and rock, but it was the emperor. It was Augustus. It was Octavian who became, in, in fact, the first emperor of the, of the empire. It was under his rule that Rome became an empire. And he transformed Rome into a glorious city, the glorious city that people want to go see today. Uh, he began that. And so he started out with uh, a city and he transformed brick into marble. And he says that, uh, it says that within, within the city, within one short reign, was transformed from brick into marble, were side by side the most abject misery and almost boundless luxury. So that was the condition. Abject misery or boundless luxury. There was no middle class there. Of a population... In that day, Rome had a population of about 2 million people. Of that population, one half were slaves. And of the rest, of the other million, the greater part of the other million were either freedmen, which means what? Former slaves and their descendants, or foreigners. And what rights did foreigners have in Rome? They didn't. So foreigners didn't have rights. They weren't Roman citizens, so they didn't have rights as citizens of Rome, and they didn't have Latin rights because they weren't Latins. They were foreigners. So the majority of people that lived in Rome were not even Romans with the rights and the benefits of Roman citizens. The vast majority of them were not that. Each class contributed its share to the common decay. Slavery was not even what we know it, but a seething mass of cruelty and oppression on the one side and of cunning and corruption on the other. More than any other cause, it was slavery that contributed to the ruin of Roman society. The freedmen who had very often acquired their liberty by the most disreputable courses. They had no scruples. Whatever they needed to do to obtain their freedom is what they did. And had prospered in them. So they used whatever means they needed to gain their freedom, to prosper as slaves, and they used that prosperity, they used those means to become freedmen. Combined, so you take that, combined in shameless manner with the vices of the free, so you have the free people and all their vices, combine that with the vileness of the slave, and that's what you have in the freedman. A man who believes what the, the ends completely justify the means, and there is no... There are no boundaries. There is no society that says this is right or this is wrong. There is only the state. And what's right and what's wrong is what the state says is right and wrong. And it doesn't matter what you think is right and wrong unless it coincides with what the state says is right and wrong. So a freedman can do anything he wants to you 
if it's allowable by the state, and it doesn't matter what you think about it. These are the people who are basically ruling Roman society. The foreigners, especially Greeks and Syrians, who crowded the city, poisoned the springs of its life by the corruption which they brought. Because remember, they had no rights. So the only way they could make a way was through corruption. Because a lot of the things they needed to do, wanted to do, they couldn't do because they weren't Roman citizens, so they used the means of corruption to, to, to figure out how to navigate the system. So corruption ruled everything. The free citizens were idle, dissipated, sunken in there, sunken. Their chief thoughts of the theater and the arena, and they were mostly supported at the public cost. So the free citizens, the true Romans, had become a class of people who didn't work. They didn't need to. They were supported by the state. Who was working? Well, all the slaves were working. And the freedmen had to work to make their way, to make their money, because they, didn't, they weren't born into luxury, because a freedman could never become a senator. A freedman could not attain to certain levels. Though Felix was a freedman, so he could become the governor of Samaria, but Felix could never become a senator. Felix could not do certain things and freedmen could never attain to the status of a free Roman citizen. So free Roman citizens were just this idle class who, who just reaped all the benefits. And it was the slaves and the people that did all the, the stuff that supported them. They were mostly supported at the public cost. It says, while even in the time of Augustus, the emperor prior to Tiberius. Even in the time of Augustus, more than 200,000 persons were thus maintained by the state in the city of Rome. Just maintained by the state. Now, sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? When uh, this gentleman is writing this uh, book, he's, a, he's old school. He's back in the 19th century. Uh, there was no such thing as state-supported system as the way we understand it. Basically, what we have in large part is what Rome had in many ways, except on steroids. Now, let me go down here. It, is already, it, has, it, is, it has been rightly said that the idea of conscience, as we understand it, was unknown to heathenism. So in the world Jesus is ministering in, in the world of the Roman Empire in 30 AD, the idea of conscience as we understand it did not exist in the heathen world, in the pagan world. Absolute right did not exist unless the state said something was absolutely right. Then it was absolutely right, but that's defined by the state. And that, all, that would change with the change of emperors or the whims of the emperor. Absolute right did not exist. Might was right. 
The social relations exhibited, if possible, even deeper corruption. The sanctity of marriage had ceased. Female dissipation and the general disillusionness led to, at last to an almost entire cessation of marriage in the empire. This is, this is where the gospel is beginning in the, in when we talk about the New Testament church, the preaching of the gospel. Marriage had almost ceased. This is in the Roman world. We're not the outlier. The anomaly in all of this was who? It was the Jews. That's exactly right. The Jews were the anomaly. They, they stuck out like a sore thumb, and that's exactly what God wanted them to do. Except now, as we've already seen, that corruption has infiltrated and filled the Jews and the Jewish hierarchy as well. But still, the law was there. The law of God was there. The word of God was there. And the only island of sanity was, was the Jews and the law of God and the scriptures of God. Abortion and the exposure and murder of newly born children were common and tolerated. And so it is today again. Unnatural vices. He, he says in here several times, he says that I can't even describe to you, I, I can't do it. It would be immoral for me to even describe the things that were common. Unnatural vices, which even the greatest philosophers practiced, if not advocated. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Attained proportions which defy description. I'm reading this and I'm wondering what he would think about our current world. But among these sad signs of the times, three must be specifically mentioned. First, the treatment of slaves. The bear, and second, the bearing towards the poor and public amusements. The slave was entirely unprotected. Males and females were exposed to nameless cruelties compared to which death by being thrown to wild beasts or fighting in the arena might seem absolute relief. Sick or old slaves were cast out to perish from want. But what the influence of the slaves must have been on the free population, and especially upon the young, whose tutors they generally were. So you free Roman citizens, your children were tutored by slaves. That would have been a pr pretty good gig for a slave in Rome. The heartlessness towards the poor who crowded the city is another well-known feature of ancient Roman society. Of course, there was neither hospitals nor provision for the poor. Charity and brotherly love in their, in their every manifestation are purely Old and New Testament ideas. It's the Jews and the Christians. Hospitals were started by Christians. <clears throat> they didn't exist in Rome. No one cared about the poor in Rome. 
But even the bestowal of the smallest alms on the needy was, regard, was, was regarded as very questionable. Best not to afford them the means of protracting a useless existence. If you help them, they might live longer than they need to. So don't help them, just let them die because we don't need them here. We don't say those things out loud, but our policies sure seem to mirror this in, in many ways. Lastly, the account which Seneca has to give of what occupied and amused the idle multitude. For all manual labor except agriculture was looked upon with utmost contempt. Horrified even himself, the thought of a free Roman doing any kind of manual labor was unheard of. Agriculture was somewhat accepted, but even that by most was seen as something that slaves should be doing. And so the only escape which remained for the philosopher, the satiated, or the miserable seemed the power of self-destruction. What is worse, no, the noblest spirits of the time felt that the state of things was utterly hopeless. Society could not reform itself. This, this is the way they looked at it. There is no hope. There's no saving us. This is a miserable existence. And, and you know, how many times can you go to the Colosseum? Can you go to the circus? How many times can you see people eaten by animals or chop each other up with swords? to where that just isn't entertaining anymore. And you have nothing except this miserable existence. This is where society was. It could not reform itself. Philosophy and religion had nothing to offer. They had been tried and found wanting. Seneca longed for some hand from without to lift up from the mire of despair, Cicero pictured the enthusiasm which would greet the embodiment of true virtue should it ever appear on earth. Tacitus declared human life one great farce and expressed his conviction that the Roman world lay under some terrible curse. It did, didn't it? And so does ours today still. All around despair, conscious need, and unconscious longing can greater contrast be imagined than the proclamation of a coming kingdom of God amid such a world? A clearer evidence be afforded of the reality of this divine message than that it came to seek and to save that which was lost? One synchronism as remarkable as that of the star in the east and the birth of the Messiah here claims the reverent attention of the student of history. So he said, this is as amazing, as miraculous as the star in the east that guided the wise man to the Messiah. On the 19th of December, A.D. 69, the Roman capital with its ancient sanctuaries was set on fire. Eight months later, on the 9th of Ab, 70 A.D., the temple of Jerusalem was given to the flames. It is not a coincidence, but conjunction. For upon the ruins of heathenism and apostate Judaism was the church of Christ 
to be raised up and reared. I thought that was a pretty um, amazing comparison to the world we live in today in so many ways. All right, thoughts about that from anybody? What did you think? Did you see some similarities? Any thoughts about that? Huh? That's right. There isn't. So let's think about what we just read in our culture today. I mean, it really seems like we're headed down that path, doesn't it? And, and maybe, maybe that's the path we need to go down. Why might that be the path we need to go down? You know, we've talked, about, we've talked about how God prepared the world for the birth of Jesus. And we talked about it specifically in building roads and building um, infrastructure and establishing law and peace. The great Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, all of that that allowed the gospel to be taken. But there was something even more important than that that God prepared the world for. I mean, God allowed this great empire to sink into such despair and hopelessness because of their sin that they didn't even know was sin. It's just how they lived. And they knew it was wrong. They knew something was wrong, but they had no means to fix it. They saw no way that the empire, that the emperor, that the structure could somehow change. And, but they all longed for something. It's like, I think it was Tachikas said, if, if virtue were to appear on earth, how, how unbelievable that would be and how glorious that would be. I mean, they were primed for the gospel. What do you think? I mean, I, I read that and I thought, about the world we live in today. And in some ways, we have segments of our society that are just now coming into their freedom to flaunt their sin any way and anywhere they want to. We were reading coming over here tonight about a guy, street preacher, street preacher in Pennsylvania who is arrested for proclaiming the gospel at a pride event and they told, they told him, you can't do that. It's offensive. And he wouldn't stop, so they arrested him. Pennsylvania, USA. Arrested for disturbing the peace of sinners sinning. Those, those, those accounts aren't going to become fewer. They're going to become more. That city hall in that Pennsylvania town was flying the pride flag in front of their city hall. I'm waiting for that day to come here if something doesn't change. I mean, when I read this and I see where Rome was when Christ was born, 
And Christ began to preach. As bad as it is here in America, I, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And we still, we still are benefiting, even today, but yeah. that only can last so long yeah. when we reject the very God who made us. Yeah, and, and it's like, you know, Christians think that there's going to be this big, all of a sudden event that's going to happen. And now, then I'm going to be ready. No, it's happening. We're, we're in the pot and the water's starting to boil yeah that's right yeah yeah i thought that was so telling the the attitude of the roman people it's like they just had no hope they saw how horrible this was but no power no ability and really no willingness even to change it because they loved the fact that the, the state supported them and people did all of their stuff. I mean, you know, they, it, it was entitlement. It was the height of entitlement. And you think the vast majority of the population of that city were the ones feeding that entitlement of the few. Yeah. What else? All right. Well, sometimes you have secrets. Like you said, there was a, a there were like chosen few, like there were people that stuck out, sore thumbs. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it has to become so bad for that contrast to really mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it, in, in, reading, in reading that, you know, the, my summary of that would be basically the people of Rome ran out of options. They tried everything they knew to make themselves happy, satisfied, fulfilled, and they had no options left. All the money, all the free stuff, all the entertainment, all of that, it, it, it can't do it. It'll satisfy for a while, but it's not going to satisfy long term. And I think about our culture today. I mean, there are lots of options left for people. <laughs> you know, we, we, haven't, we haven't plumbed the depths of depravity yet, yet in our culture. Um, because people are still hoping in their depravity. They're hoping in their sin. And they're counting on it. They, they've fully believe, if you'll just let me go and live in my sin, I'll be happy. I don't need your gospel. I don't need your God. I think that's what I was thinking, but when, the, when we were talking to the dragon mom thing, yeah. and she was talking about the high rates of suicide, and I was like, mm -hmm. tell, like, tell me more about that. Like, you know what I yeah. mean? And she just kept saying, you know, oh, it's, it's 
yeah, yeah. Uh-uh. Right, you did such a good job of leading her down that path, but she wouldn't go there. Yeah. 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 And why is that? Because when you give those children or you give those individuals everything they want, cut off my breast, change my... My body make me into what I wasn't born to be. And when they get there and they're still not fulfilled, then what do you have left? And then when you get there and you, you think, oh my gosh, I've made a horrible mistake, but there is no turning back. What, what's left? You, you know, if you don't find Christ, you're left in hopelessness and death is the only, the only option you do have left. Yeah. But they won't say that because to say that would be to. Well, they're yeah. It's interesting. I just read an article a couple of days ago. Uh, now it's uh, Sweden, Finland. They're like four, all the Scandinavian countries, they've all changed their laws because they see how damaging this is. So they've made it illegal for children to go through hormone therapy and gender reassignment surgery. There, there's, there's very, very rare exceptions, but it's like, no, this is, this is not good. And they've changed their laws. But here in America, we're just headlong, and we like pretend like that doesn't even exist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're a threat, but we can't say what we want to say. Yeah. It's uh, it's very interesting. I had something I, I can't remember. I, it's, it's gone from my brain now. All right, what else? Anything else? Um... Man, I had something I can't remember. Somebody said something that made me think of a thing. Oh, well. Hmm. Well, it is why the gospel is so important. It's the only hope we have. And uh, we've got to be committed to it. Because if we're not committed to it, um, we keep waiting for something to change, and it's not going to change unless we give them the change. And I, you know, this was such a, for me, it was such a helpful picture. You know, the world was ready to hear good news, and it embraced it because there was no good news until the gospel came, until the good news came. We have a lot of people who, today don't believe the good news is good news. Oh, I, one thing I was going to say, you know, since the interview aired on whatever night it aired. When did it air? Monday. Man, I'm telling you, I am getting these. They must have like a group of people that just, but, and they're all professing to be Christians. 
And they all want to correct me. And they all want to tell me how, they want to meet with me and explain to me why I'm wrong and how horrible it is that I would tell um, a transgender or LBGTQ person that their lifestyle is sinful. Um, that it's all about love and you're the one who's not loving. And, and those are the kind ones, <laughs> you know. They're not all that kind. But, uh, and, and you know, it's like when we were out there Sunday. Here is the Episcopal Church affirming that these, these people living, practicing this sinful lifestyle. And I mean, there was everything out there you can imagine. I mean, transvestites, transgender people, you know, um, that they are, that they're, perfectly holy and acceptable to God. And God loves you just the way you are. In fact, we people, we're the ones that aren't loving. We're the ones that don't know God, the God of love. I tried to talk to the Episcopal priest, but he wouldn't talk to me. And, and, and there, are, there are people like him, there are pastors like him, and then there are pastors who just won't, won't speak up. So you be the person that will speak up and encourage others to speak up because if we don't tell them the gospel, they can't be saved. There's no other way. All right, any prayer requests tonight? Okay.